Last week on Easter Sunday, we looked at one of the aspects of Christ's resurrection and sort of answering the question, so what? What does it mean? What is the significance that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead? And we're sort of going to continue that theme today by taking a look at the statements that Jesus made to the church between the time that he rose again from the dead and before he ascended into heaven. Ordinarily, when we think of things Jesus said between those two pivotal events, we think about the Great Commission, where Jesus said that all authority on heaven and earth had been given to him, and he was sending out his disciples to uh, teach others about him, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and assuring him them of his presence with them. Now, that is an exceptionally important statement that Jesus made between his resurrection and his ascension, but it's not the only one. In fact, uh, James Boyce identifies seven uh, statements that Jesus made that are of exceptional importance to the church. We've entitled this uh, next sermon series, Provision, because in it, Jesus blesses, challenges, and empowers his church so that they can know him deeply and they can live on mission for him. And so this morning, we're going to begin with the first of these post-resurrection statements of Jesus, where he leaves a legacy of abiding peace and joy to his people. And we find these words in God's word for us in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 21. This is the, the day of the resurrection. Jesus had appeared to some of the, uh, the women in the morning. Um, the disciples ran to the tomb, saw it was empty. And this is in the evening uh, where Jesus is coming to appear to his disciples. And we read that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, and there are two instances in this passage where Jesus pronounces peace to his followers. And it is not just for importance and repetition that Jesus makes two pronouncements of peace. Each of them are vitally explained, and each one of those occur, uh, occurrences are explained by the words that immediately follow them. And so we're going to look today at two aspects and one product of God's peace that he provides to us through Jesus Christ. So the first part of Christ's peace that he gives us is that the risen Christ gives us peace by putting away our sin. You will notice in uh, verse 20, after Jesus initially says, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side. There is a connection between Jesus saying, peace be with you, and Jesus showing them his hands and his side. He is telling them, the means by which that peace has been obtained for them, the kind of peace that he has provided them. 
It was the peace that he had spoken about many times with his disciples. And now he is appearing to them as the one who obtained that peace for them through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. When we read these verses, we see that Jesus is telling us that the first and the primary means of peace that he brings to us is peace with God that puts away our sin. And it is the basis and the foundation of the other aspect of peace that we will be looking at. Now, if you fast forward a couple of weeks from when Jesus makes this pronouncement of peace to his disciples, and he ascends into heaven, and he sits at the Father's right hand, he then pours out the Spirit upon the church on the day of Pentecost. And physical phenomena accompany that account. You might remember people gathered there hear the sound of rushing wind. They see flames like tongues of fire resting upon the disciples. And then many of them begin speaking in known languages, but languages that were unknown to them, to visitors within the city so that people could hear the good news of Jesus Christ in their native tongue. And people were amazed by this. Some were, were perplexed, wondering what all of this meant. And then there were others who were alleging that the disciples were drunk. And because they didn't know that it was a known language, they were accusing them of, of being drunk and merely babbling. But Peter goes on to explain that what the people are witnessing is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and the plan of God. And Peter notes what the significance is as he begins to explain this on the day of Pentecost. He refers to two things. <laughs> He's referring to Jesus, whom they put to death with the help of lawless men. He repeats the phrase, this Jesus, and he also emphasizes that God raised him from the dead. Other places in scripture mentions that Jesus rose from the dead, but Peter is careful to indicate that this is the act and the work of God that this is happening, and he explains why. We read in Acts 2, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, what is the significance of what Peter is saying here, and how does it connect to Jesus providing peace? Well, one of the evidences or one of the proofs that the resurrection gives to us is that it declares that God has accepted 
and received the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross to satisfy the penalty for our sin. In fact, that God raised him from the dead is an indication of God's pleasure, his receiving, his validating the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of accomplishing the removal of our sin and giving us peace by putting away that sin that separated us from him. That is why Peter is very careful to demonstrate to them, to make the connections for them, that they would see that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was Jesus' gift to the church, his ongoing gift to the church, and demonstration of the fact that God has received his sacrifice and seated him at his right hand. So the resurrection then is God's declaration for us saying, I have given you peace. I have accomplished peace for you. Your sin no longer separates you from me. You are no longer under condemnation. You no longer are guilty of the accusations that the devil brings against you. We are at peace because I have raised my son from the dead and I accept his sacrifice on your behalf for your salvation. That is the glory of Pentecost. It is God saying, it is true. My grace is available for all who believe in Jesus. You know, when you think about it, when we observe communion together, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that is another time that God is attesting to what is being represented. We speak of the Lord's Supper being a sign where the broken bread and the juice represent the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ for our salvation. We also speak of the sacraments as being a seal. And what we mean by that is that it is God attesting to the truth that is being portrayed before us. Salvation is possible. Peace has been accomplished. And the way that that is received, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now you can imagine that one of the things that the disciples were experiencing at this point was the extraordinary guilt that they were feeling for all having abandoned their Lord. And where the enemy or their conscience may be saying, sin, sin, the first words that Jesus brings to them is peace, peace. Where they may be feeling shame and shame, Jesus is pronouncing peace and peace. Where they may be feeling separated and alienated from God, Jesus is declaring peace, peace. And that is the extraordinary blessing that Christ assures us of as we rest in Christ for our salvation. That for all who acknowledge their sin, who confess that before God and rest in Christ is the only hope that they would be forgiven, they have the pronouncement of the risen Jesus of shalom and the peace of God upon them. And the fact that we have been reconciled with God, that there is no longer any more alienation, leads us to the next type of peace of which Jesus describes. So we see that the risen Christ gives us peace, not only by putting away our sin, but he gives us peace by removing our fears.
In fact, Jesus' words are being spoken to disciples who are gathered together behind locked doors, as Scripture says, because they feared for the Jews. Now, you remember it was the the Jewish people with the hands of the Romans who put Jesus to to death. Jesus said to them before the crucifixion that as the world hates me, so it's going to hate you too. And so they have to be thinking to themselves that if they accuse Jesus of being an insurrectionist, were they going to accuse them of being an insurrectionist? And would they be next? And to these people in this very context, Jesus comes and says to them, peace be with you. Now go out into that very world that you fear without fear, but with my peace. Can you imagine? You know, oftentimes I put myself uh, wondering what the, the disciples must have been experiencing at that point. They were probably so amped up that Jesus was risen from the dead, and they're probably thinking, Jesus, you go show them. You go tell them. And he says, no, you do it. I am sending you out to do that, which is one of the other sayings that Jesus covers that will, we'll, uh, I'm so, one of the other Jesus sayings after the resurrection that we'll cover in a future week. But the importance here is that we need not to fear the world. Jesus has overcome the world. He has granted us peace. We need not be fearful and anxious because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, I am not implying here in any way, shape, or form that if we believe in Jesus, that we will never be afraid, that we will never be worried, that we will never be insecure or anxious, we will struggle with fear and worry and a myriad of other struggles. So what's the difference then between a Christian who struggles with fear and worry and an unbeliever who struggles with fear and worry? They're On the the surface, it may not look like much difference at all. But you see, the difference rests not in the, the degree or the strength of faith that a Christian has or the degree of faith that an unbeliever has in the things that will bring them peace. The difference is the object in which that faith rests. When Connie and I lived in Michigan, uh, our first winter there, we had never seen people ice fish before. And it was kind of mind-blowing to watch trucks drive out onto Lake St. Clair, bore holes into the ice, and start to fish. They would set up little huts. They would build fires. I mean, some of the folks just stayed out there for days. Now, imagine that it's getting towards spring. And a good friend of yours comes up to you and says, hey, let's take the truck out on the lake and let's go fishing. And you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, it's getting kind of warm. I wonder if the the ice is going to be sufficient enough to support the weight of the truck. And your friend keeps reassuring you that, oh, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Have faith. You got to believe. And so, okay, you drive the truck out on the ice and bam, it falls through the ice and it sinks. Why? Was it because your friend lacked faith? No, it was because the object that your friend placed his faith in was faulty. And so if the world is placing its hope and its security and its sense of peace in the promises of the world, that, hey, if you've got a good job, 
You've got a loving family. You've got good friends and relationships. You've got enough money put away for your future that you can go out and take some trips and enjoy yourself. If you have all of those things, then you'll have peace. That's, that's what the world tells us, right? And a lot of times we follow those promises of the world, don't we? But what happens when the economy goes bad and you lose your job? Or you get a new boss who is unreasonable and doesn't appreciate your work? What happens if a child gets sick or a spouse dies or the economy crashes or politics become so intrusive and disruptive? What happens to your peace? It falters because the object that you've placed your faith in, while they might be nice blessings to enjoy, are terrible foundations for peace. Whereas the believer, even though their faith may be weak, even though they may struggle, they will have available to them the fullness of the peace of God because the object of their peace is sure. It is the abiding Savior who declares to us that he will grant us peace in this world. That's what Jesus said before he went to the cross. In this world, you will have much trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so it is as we rely in Christ and the goodness of his work that we can have an extraordinary sense of peace, even when life may be disruptive. You know, there are plenty of examples in scripture of solid, strong believers who struggled with fear and insecurity and worry because they were facing some extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And in fact, some of them were even downright suicidal. Think of Moses and the position that he was in. Moses had a congregation of about 2 million people and he's leading them through the wilderness and they're complaining. Ah, oh, they can't stand this daily provision of, uh, of food that God is giving them. How they long for the meat that they had back in Egypt and complaining and complaining. And on the other side of him, uh, Moses is interacting with the Lord who is angry with his people and he's thinking of disciplining them. And Moses finally says to the Lord, it's too much. I can't take it anymore. It would be more merciful to me if you would just kill me now. Think of Elijah. Elijah had been engaged in conflict with the prophets of Baal and he is on Mount Carmel with them. And 450 of their prophets come and they, they, meet, they meet up against Elijah and uh, the Lord defeats the 450 prophets of Baal and answered Elijah's prayer. He ends the three-year drought and he sends rain. And so Ahab goes back to uh, Jezreel where his wife, uh, Queen Jezebel is. And Elijah, who must have been extraordinarily fit, outran them uh, while they were in the chariot only to get there to hear Jezebel's declaration that she is going to do to Elijah what happened to the prophets of Baal. So scripture tells us he turns around and he runs to Beersheba, 90 miles away, and there he's exhausted. He's hungry, he's exhausted, and he says to God, I'm done. I'm afraid for my life. I wish you would just kill me. Think of the apostle Paul. He writes how he in the province of Asia had endured such hardships that in his heart he felt the sentence of death and he despaired of life itself. 
And later in 2 Corinthians, he says that every day he outwardly had the pressures of all the churches upon him and inwardly he faced many fears. But in all of those instances, since they had rested their faith upon the foundation of the finished work of Christ, they had available for them the extraordinary peace of God to calm them in their fears. And they ultimately did, despite the fact they were really struggling at one point. Nonetheless, the Lord brought them through. So we even have the example of David, for instance, when he was seized by the Philistines in Gath. He was able to declare in Psalm 56, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And so we need to remind ourselves, if the Lord has taken care of the greatest need that we could ever face, a need that we were incapable of of providing on our own, that is reconciliation and peace with God, will he not also provide us peace to meet the fears and the challenges that we face in life? And so that leads us to the last point of how the risen Christ gives us joy by gladdening our hearts. In chapter 20, verse 20, we read that when Jesus said peace to the disciples, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, again, Jesus is not just showing them his wounds because he's trying to establish his identity with them. He's showing them the wounds so that they would understand the basis of the peace that they had. And when they recognized it was Jesus and what God had accomplished through him, Scripture says that their hearts were glad. Now notice, their circumstances hadn't changed at this point. There were still the the difficulties that they faced with the Jewish authorities and the Roman officials. Jesus was still going to send them out into a hostile world. None of that had changed. But yet they were glad of heart. They had a sense of joy because of what Jesus had done for them. Jesus told his followers before his crucifixion that they would face great sorrow, but that sorrow would be turned to incredible joy. A joy that no one or no thing could ever rob them of or separate them from. And John 16, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus was going to provide for them a similar experience to his own, where scripture tells us that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, suffering its shame. 
The path that God had marked out for Christ did not exclude him from the cross as the savior of our sins. He experienced extraordinary pain and anguish as he bore our penalty of sin and he was separated from the presence of his father as our sin bearer. But by keeping his eyes upon the father and the work that the father had called him to do for the joy that he knew that his faithfulness would bring to his father, he was able to endure that shame knowing that extraordinary joy would follow. And so too, Scripture encourages us time and again that even though we suffer a little while, glory is going to follow and inexpressible joy, Peter describes when he's talking about the resurrection in first, in first I'll try that again, in First Peter chapter 1. It is an extraordinary, glorious joy that is ours. A gladness of heart arising from the knowledge that we are at peace with God and he is with us and no one can take the inheritance that he has reserved for us in Christ Jesus. And one of the former homes that Connie and I lived in, um, it, was a, it was a great home. It was a, a well-built home. It was, at least we thought, it was um, uh, well cared for and it had no problems until we moved into the home. And then we began to see cracks along the, the ceiling in the family room. And then we had trouble opening up the storm door, getting into the house because the brick, the facade brick on the front of the house had shifted and the house was uh, bearing pressure and it was beginning to show the signs of the pressure. Well, to make a long story short, what ended up happening was the footer, the front footer had cracked and had fallen off and the brick facade had begun to shift. An extraordinary example of Jesus' truth in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, don't build your house on the sandy land, but rather build it upon the firm bedrock of the word of God. And the point applies also to our sense of peace and joy in this life. There are many things that appear to be a solid basis upon which we can place our peace and joy in this life. We have identified some of the promises that the world gives us of how we can be joyful and peaceful in this life. But we understand from the word of God that those things are our shifting sands and they cannot bear the pressures of the reality of life. No, to experience the joy and the peace that Jesus provides, let us base our peace and joy firmly upon the foundation of his word and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then those things, like the peace of God that passes understanding, those things like the joy inexpressible, full of glory will be ours, even if our circumstances in life are very difficult and very trying because our foundation for our faith and peace and joy will be upon Christ and his solid promises and not the promises of this world. Let us pray together.